Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about positioning plus pricing equaling profits. Yay, profits. (laughs) We love those. (laughs) So this is inspired by an email I got from a, a longtime list member who had been thinking really hard about my message about value pricing in particular and and how in a sales meeting uh, you need to figure out how much the outcome is worth to the buyer and it's not about you it's about them and and all of this you focused client focused language to kind of uncover all that he was like okay i get that but i'm confused because the information about you like like things about you matter also when it comes to setting the price. And I was like, and I could see what he was getting at, and I could see that he needed to kind of understand the whole landscape of it to understand, you know, just the one value pricing piece, which they're all, dis- to me, they're all distinct, but I think about it constantly. So I could see that he was like, there's, uh, there's other stuff going on there. You're oversimplifying <laughs> this. And so I typed up a, a big response to it that it did click with him. So kind of wanted to use that as uh, the inspiration for this episode and talk about how a quick, I won't go nuts, but just a quick concept of <laughs> the value pricing concept and how if you have, if you're doing that, then, then positioning is really important. And the flip side is if you're very well positioned, then value pricing is really important. So if you do them both, it's like a, a force multiplier. It's like a, an exponential in, increase in awesomeness. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's leverage. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah, precisely. It creates a huge amount of leverage. So I guess I could start with uh, pricing. It doesn't even necessarily mean value pricing, but I do mean pricing. So if let's say you're a, you're a thought leader or an authority and you have some services that you sell, if you are if you are renting yourself out by the hour, then you're not pricing anything. It's not a price. You, if anything, you're giving people an estimate of how many hours you think something is going to take, some project is going to take, and that's not pricing. Pricing is when you say, this is going to be this much money. Do you want it or don't you want it? And they might ask you questions about exactly what's entailed and so on and so forth, what they can expect to get from it, the odds of success, all of that stuff. But they know the price up front before they make a buying decision. When you're providing someone with just an estimate up front, they have to make a buying decision and they act like the estimate's a price because they have no choice. And they move forward and you're just getting this hourly rate. Okay, so everybody everybody knows about hourly billing and it's like this linear thing. You end up in this trap because you generally can't raise your hourly rates to match how much better you get over time because the rates just get ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This starts to sound ridiculous. Like a $2,000 an hour? I don't think so. I well, clients look at that. It's it's not, it's visible and it has to make sense to them if they see it. Right. And and since it's it's focusing on the input of the of the your time, dear listener, focusing on this input that you're going to provide to them and it's like, it seems way out of bounds, then it's really going to be hard for you to raise your rates beyond like a an upper limit and it's different from industry to industry but there's a strong limit there and you end up stuck in this hourly trap of like you have to work more to make more money and i've heard of some outliers where trial attorneys or corporate lawyers can 
do like, you know, our partners in a huge law firm can, can get $2,000 an hour. And, but the reason is because they're hyper differentiated from other people and it's a particular kind of industry, a particular kind of client. But in general, for most, most people listening, there's no way you're going to be getting certainly four figures per hour and, and getting enough clients to stay busy. Well, plus when you lead with your hourly rate, it gives clients a point of comparison that isn't valid. Because if everybody had properly, quote unquote, priced hourly rates, it would reflect their experience and their speed with which they got things done. I think it's just an artificial comparison. Oh, well, I want to go with so-and-so because they're $50 an hour versus person B who's $100 an hour, but three times as fast. So it's, it's yeah. just an artificial construct. I totally agreed. And it, and it focuses the clients on the wrong thing. If you're experienced and you're really good at what you do, you get penalized because you can do things at a high quality very quickly and it doesn't make sense. So, okay, that's no surprise to anyone. I think hourly billing is awful. Um, but uh, so pricing of any kind, whether it's it's fixed pricing for productized services or you say, or you've got just a fee, you know, a $10,000 speaker fee, that's not value-based. It's just your price. You set a price somehow. Value pricing is a way to calculate a price. I think it makes the most sense for projects, by which I mean a non-trivial, you know, three to six month or longer collaborative enterprise with a client where you're both going to be working on something. It's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's some kind of success criteria. It's not an ongoing subscription or advisory retainer or something like that. It's a project and it's going to take work from both of you and it's going to be done at a certain point. If you've got something like that, value pricing is a great fit. And the way that that works is just real quickly, you talk to them about what they're trying to achieve. You decide for yourself if you think you'd be a good fit to help them move that needle. And then if you do believe that that's true, then you put together a proposal with three options, small, medium, and large, and you pick three prices. So if the value is $100,000, you're going to pick three prices that are a fraction of that. So like, let's say... 10,000, 22,000, and 50,000 is kind of my rule of thumb for a $100,000 value. So you get 10%, 22%, and 50% of the overall value. And then you think, all right, what can I do? Like you haven't even decided what you're going to do yet. You do this, you think about the scope last. So you're like, eh, if they give me $10,000, what could I do to help contribute to this outcome that they want? If I had a $22,000 budget, what could I do to contribute to this outcome that they want? If I had $50,000, what could I do? So it's, it's backwards from the way most people consider uh, projects. You know, in a sales meeting, usually they're thinking about scope first and then they'll figure out how long do they think that's going to take, how long do I think that's going to take me? And then you deliver some prices based on how long you think it's going to take you. So I'm, I'm suggesting doing it the exact opposite. But that that is just a way to set a price. If you are setting a price somehow, then you're in good shape to benefit from strong positioning right actually let me let me take it back to the email let me take it back to the email so so i in in a previous email i described this sort of value pricing thing where come up with the value first it's all about what it's worth to the client it's all about them and then you give them some prices and he's like and he, he sensed that there's something else at play there because he was like but the, but i can't just set any old price because what if my price that i set's higher than someone else that's going to affect the price as well and I was like, oh, okay, I see what I see what he's thinking here. 
so there's this concept of, of an acceptable price. You can set a price at anything. Oh, you want my daughter's uh, watercolor? It's going to be a million dollars. Like I can set a price of a million dollars for my daughter's watercolor. It's not an acceptable price to anyone. It seems like a, a dumb distinction, but people were like, oh, I can't set my price wherever. I'm like, you can set your price wherever, but it doesn't mean it's going to get accepted. <laughs> if you want your price to be accepted, it needs to be less than what it's worth to the client. The value to them of the project outcome is the upper bound. So if you set your price beneath that, especially at 10%, 22% or 50%, you give them three options that are way lower than the value, then those are probably acceptable prices. Assuming that you aren't way off, even if you are way off, you're still probably under the value with your prices. And then they can start thinking about, well, you know, is this much, this $10,000 contribution that, you know, this option one contribution, is it worth $10,000 to maybe get this $100,000 goal? So they can think about that. And those are, this is a strong rule of thumb that has played out over 15, 20 years for me. It, it works great unless, <laughs> and, this is, <laughs> and this is what our, our friend was wrestling with, unless the client is aware of what they perceive to be the same thing for less. So this is where the positioning comes into it. So if they're looking at, if they get your proposal and they're like, oh, this option two for 22,000, that seems great. I, we really like this. But they become aware, maybe they shop around, of uh, person B that can give air quotes the same thing for less, they're going to go with the cheaper one. But this isn't this is not a pricing issue. That's a positioning issue, because they believe that person B is just as good, is going to be just as fast. All it's apples to apples. All things are equal, and they can get it for less. So that's a better deal. And yes, you're going to get you're going to have a hard time closing. Uh, deals if you're getting undercut by people that your clients can't distinguish from you in any way other than your price. So you can see how pricing, any of the, any whether it's value pricing or fixed pricing or time and materials pricing, if you're setting a price on something and your clients have it what they believe an apples to apples comparison to someone else that charges less, you're always going to lose. Mm-hmm. And be very frustrated in the process. Yeah, especially if you think that you're way better than person B. You need to be meaningfully different in the client's mind from person B. Yes. Or they're just not gonna they're just not gonna pick you. It's yes. it would be weird. It would be And there's a lot of ways to be meaningfully different. Yes. And so that's where the positioning comes in. I don't know if I want to go into the Paul Newman's Paul Newman Rolex watch, but but Paul Newman had this Rolex that was super famous because he wore it in a bunch of movies. He wore it all the time. And it sold for $17 million at auction. You know, the watch probably cost 700 bucks new. And you could buy one now for 10000 So why would somebody pay $17 million for it? Because Paul it's, Newman, baby. Yeah, it's Paul <laughs> Newman's watch. The actual one. Not the, not the same model, like the one. Right. So that's that was meaningfully enough different to somebody <laughs> who had a lot of buying power and wanted that thing really bad. There's no substitute. If you want that watch, that's it. There's no substitute. And I know Rochelle and I have both had the experience and lots of my students have had the experience where they're so different. They're not just a mobile web developer. They're not just a branding expert. They're like a particular person. 
that that clients are like, I'm not even looking for someone else. Like, we just want to know if we can afford you and if there's time that we can get on your calendar. And they're not even looking around because you're, you know, if you, like, you can buy a watch for five for a dollar for less than that. So why would you spend 17 million? You know, because there's there's some meaning to it to you. There's a story. It's meaningfully different to a watch buyer to buy this Paul Newman Rolex. So if you're not meaningfully different from the other leadership coaches or copywriters or video producers or web developers or whatever, if you're just a web developer or a video producer or a copywriter, well then yeah, they're going to they're going to compare you based on price with other people. Hey, so, one second though, it's meaningfully yeah. different in the eyes of your client cuz we can sit there all day long and beat our chest and say, well, we're different, we're better, we know this, we know that, we've done this. It's how the client views it. And a lot of times they can't tell the difference between us. Right. Now, I would hope that a lot of people of this particular show would have like a big idea and they would have some worldview that they put forth and is, is going to automatically help with that kind of thing where it's super authentic, it's really focused and it's like maybe contrarian and you're naturally going to, I think a lot of folks listening to this show are naturally going to have that. But if you don't, then yeah, you're going to get undercut on price like crazy, whether you're, whether it's, whether you're billing by the hour or setting prices or whatever, you're going to have a hard time because, because then you always have to answer the question, well, you know, we got proposals from five people and yours was the highest one. Why should we pick you? And then you're like, uh, I don't know. I'm better. Uh, I have more experience. Uh, like all of these things are like not necessarily meaningful to the client it needs to be something they care about. So if your audience are big corporates, a lot of times they have to choose the lowest price. Think about that. If you've got purchase, the purchasing department involved, they're going to want to choose the lowest price. So you have to find a way to differentiate so that it's on more than price. And you have to make it not only do it in your mind, but you have to do it in the minds of your client. And especially if it's a team sale, then you need to convince whoever is making various decisions within the team that you are materially different or you're not going to get past purchasing in particular. Yeah, that's just, it's even a higher bar there. But it's the same thing. I mean, I've had a similar situation with, with the, uh, you know, these objections like, oh, yeah, we put that through and, and uh, there's a policy that we can't do, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, then I won't do it. And like, no, 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 we need you to do it. I'm like, well, tell that to purchasing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't know what you want me to, it's like, I don't know if, if it's just this always this price buyer thing and trying to get a lower price. But if you're the only option, you know, like April Dunford, obviously awesome. If you're the obvious choice, then those other, the air quotes, competitors are just not on the table anymore because your buyer is like, your buyer just pushes it through. Like if you're talking to the right person, they can, they can make things happen. Yes. And purchasing is usually only involved when there is a, a request for proposal, an RFP. <laughs> and generally speaking, you don't want to be responding to RFPs. It's unless you've got a firm of people and you've got a, a, a process that has been proven over and over again and you win, it's it's not the space for a soloist. You do not want to be filling out an RFP. Right. Yeah. Blair Ends has a great, huge, long blog post on, on don't, yeah, basically he says the same thing. Don't respond to RFPs. 
but if you have to, here's how to do it. It's really good, but it's, mm-hmm. it's for agencies. It's for people that have like 50 to hundred employees and like they've got like payroll coming every month and they can't just be picky like perhaps a soloist can be. Oh, I've gotten RFPs with what I do. My mouth drops every time. I haven't gotten one in a few years, but I can still remember one that had like 30 questions. I'm like, you kidding me? I'm not filling this out. Right. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look what they're trying to do. They're trying to fit you into a box so they can compare all these different options, apples to apples. It's not, it's not what you want. You want to be like, it's, it's, it's them trying to optimize a difficult process instead of which you're like why i'm not gonna why would i help you with this you know what i mean yes exactly exactly okay so now i want to flip the the focus over to positioning because if you have i mean if you have bad positioning you kind of have no leverage if you're not if you're not like the go-to person for something or you're not super well known in a particular with an audience or a target market you're going to have a hard time differentiating yourself in a meaningful way to your clients is like hugely important. It's like, there's no way around it. If you don't do that, you're going to have low prices or rates forever. And the older you get, you know, they keep making new people every day. (laughs) The older you get, the more people who are going to come on the scene who are willing to do it cheaper. Yes. If the clients can't tell the difference between you and them, they're going to go with the cheaper ones. Okay. Duh. Right. So here's here's the now if you flip it around to positioning and say let's say you are you have an amazing position you're world renowned for a particular thing, but you don't price, you bill. If you bill instead of pricing, you're still going to have a hard time getting ahead, getting like real leverage, getting real profits, because we talked about at the beginning. It's like it's a pretty rare situation when you can charge two thousand dollars an hour with a straight face and close any deals. It's just not that common. You could, you know, the partner in a New York law firm, maybe. Well, but if you do bet the business solutions, you know, I've, I've worked with soloists that can do it, but it's rare. Very rare. It's very, very rare. And at that point, you're probably so good that you might as well just give them a price because you know how long it's going to take. And you can't maybe guarantee 100% an outcome, but you can guarantee certain things like that you are confident in i don't know what they are depends on the situation but there are always things if you're a professional and you're experienced and you're good at what you do there are a bunch of things that you can guarantee you might not be able to guarantee like double your revenue or something like that but you can guarantee things like if we keep it this long enough i guarantee you're going to get more pr you're going to get on stage at, at huge conferences maybe i can't get you on at ted but you'll be on at huge conferences or i can guarantee you that your traffic is going to increase. What you do with it after that is up to you. There's, you can guarantee your piece, the thing that you're an expert at. That's why you're an expert. You know you can do that. So if you're positioned really well and you're attracting people who want this, want you, not even this thing that you do, they want you. If you bill by the hour, you're just not going to get ahead. So why not start setting prices? And if you're trying to decide how to set prices, you can do things like um, come up with productized services for what I would consider relatively short engagements that are like maybe a half day innovation workshop or some sort of um, security audit or roadmap or something like that, where it's going to take you anywhere from five to 10 hours spread out across a week or two or three. And you can just post that on your website. It's $15,000 for a security audit from the one and only person who wrote the book on this. If you want me, it's going to be 15 grand 
and you can you trust me more than anyone else i'm different than anyone else you can search for security researchers if you want something cheaper but you got to pay top dollar if you want me mm-hmm. perfect yeah you can do that or if you can do that and i shouldn't say or and if you have people coming through that for which one of your productized service offerings is not an exact match you could say well we can talk about doing custom project a custom project so just and then it goes into my value pricing stuff with a sales interview and the why conversation and setting, finding the value, setting three prices and that whole, that whole sort of stream of, <laughs> stream of, uh, of, of rants that I usually do. <laughs> yeah. It is sort of circular. Like Rochelle said before the show is sort of circular. Your, your pricing and your positioning can kind of go back and forth and, and ratchet up if as you're getting more well-known, more unique, you're standing out more, you can raise your prices in a way that is going to create a lot more leverage than if you were just billing for your time. Well, and it also ties to which assignments you go after. And we've talked about this. If you want to keep getting better clients, um, part of that is that you're continually improving the level or the sophistication of the work that you're doing. And as you do that, even if you're hourly billing, your hourly rates are going to go up, right? And then you start positioning. And then you sometimes I think when people are first starting out, it's like you need to have enough under your belt that you have the courage to start doing this and the courage to really position yourself as something other than a generic whatever your thing is. Um, The courage to keep charging more until you find the upper limit on on the hourly Bent and then trying value billing or or uh, what do you call it, Jonathan? Value pricing. pricing. <laughs> I know it's my old consulting days. We always said value billing, value pricing. Um, but in between there, there's there's some different steps that you might uh, you might go through. You might go all the way to the end and go, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this. I'm I'm gonna follow Jonathan's advice on value bill uh, value pricing. <laughs> excuse <I know>. me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's old habits die hard. I'm gonna follow his his training, I'm just going to go right there. And for others, there's there's a process, but these are all related. And if you just keep making incremental steps forward, then it's it's almost like it's an engine that powers the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I have thousands and thousands of people on my mailing list who experiment with this stuff. So I do get feedback from people who, even if they aren't yet positioned fabulously, and they're still kind of seen as a web developer or a copywriter, even just giving a, you know, coming up with a fixed price to give to someone is a meaningful differentiation where it, it like, it's very small. It's a very small one, but it's a start and the results are great. Like when people do it, they always say, they say it's like magic. Like it worked. It, it's exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's great. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're instantly going to be setting like a six and seven figure acceptable prices you know on your on your proposals it might just be a little bit better but once you disconnect your time from your money like the sky's the limit where if you if you're selling your time the sky is not the limit the limit is the the maximum hourly rate that you can charge in your area times the number of hours you can work in the year full stop like end of story so it's not unbounded and that's what i call the hourly trap you get to this point where you know you've been doing this 10 years you're really experienced you're really good you're at the top of your game 
but you're working harder than ever. The idea of taking a vacation is laughable because every hour that you're at Disney World, you feel like you're losing <laughs> 150 bucks on top of whatever you're spending. And you get just like constantly clients constantly texting you or whatever. And and you start to think like this, this, this feels wrong. Yeah. This isn't what I envisioned when I hung my shingle. Yeah. Right. And so it, at that point, like hourly billing punishes experience. So if you're, if you get good, you're, you just get punished. But the idea that the thing that was interesting about this email and like, thank you for sending it in, dear listener, dear reader, um, was the, was the interplay between the two things. So it, I mean, this is why on my list, one of the things I talk about all the time is positioning. It's like, you need to be seen as meaningfully different if you want to increase your fees beyond what the horde is charging. If the horde, the crab bucket of freelancers or consultants is charging X, whether that's per hour or for a particular kind of engagement, you can have a really good answer to the question, why are you more expensive if you want to stand out from that group? So you gotta you gotta zag when everyone else is zigging. I think you have to experiment with this kind of stuff and just take a risk, take one step. And see, and your first time out, you know, maybe you, you learn something. It didn't work quite the way you thought. So you try it again. You don't not do it again, but you have to keep moving that the your price. And when I say price, I mean like in a global sense, your price doesn't remain static. It, it, you don't just have a price, right? You've got multiple price points depending on how you set them and you've got this opportunity to really shush out the value to your clients on particular things and it's almost you could almost argue it's your duty to shush out the value because then you're linking you and your client together for a shared outcome and i always think that's those are the best engagements you're you're inextricably linked on this shared outcome and then you both get to to share the um the excitement the thrill when you get there yeah i mean your incentives are aligned it's a completely yeah. different feeling yeah like you both want to finish fast <laughs> yeah and well fast and well and well. well you're not fin- yeah you wouldn't be finished if it well good yeah. yet but yeah yeah i hear you yeah, but yeah, that's important. It's an important point and it does come up and it's a, a sort of side rant about like you can't, if, as soon as you start giving fixed prices, especially for big projects, then the question can arise, well, aren't you just going to start cutting corners to be done quickly? Like you, you see this with in the building metaphor all the time. If someone's like, they've got like a max fixed price for your house, let's say. It's easy to imagine them cutting corners or if it's a cleaning crew that like the cleaning crew that cleans the gym that I go to actually my trainer was telling me this, they switched to a fixed price and then they started cutting corners like crazy where before they were paying them by the hour and they'd be in there for like 10 hours and the place would be immaculate, <laughs> but it was ridiculously expensive. They were just being slow. So they're like, yeah. look, we're not paying you this anymore. We're just going to give you this much per month. And then the, so they started cutting corners and then they had to take a third step and say, uh, if I find anything like this or this or this, the next time you have to come back and clean it for free the next time. So now all of a sudden they, the quality was guaranteed and the the price was guaranteed, and now everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. But that's a perfect example of that it's a process. I feel like every price, every way of setting a price has some downside. I mean, there's no there is no no perfect 
uh, outcome. It's, in fact, it's one of the things that I find it interesting. Clients complain a lot when they have retainers. So the PR industry, as an example, is and, and a lot of marketing people as well work on retainer. And clients, just it just bugs them. And it's an easy way for them to compare prices because everybody has retainers. So it's, okay, this one's 3,000, this one's 5,000, this one's 10,000. What do I get for that? But it's, it's frustrating. Clients don't like it. Agencies mostly like it, but the incentives are bad. You know, the incentive is to do, and a retainer is to do as little as possible. If you if you equate retainers with hours, and a lot of PR firms still do that. Yeah, that's the that's the sort of legal definition of a retainer, which I I disagree. You know, that's just another way. It's just other another way to bill hourly. Oh, um, you prepay. It's yeah, it's really, like you're prepaying just, for hours. Yeah, it's a little bit better, but it's still there's no there's no results. Like no one's talking about results. So I, I like I like talking about advisory retainers, where it's not about the hours. Like you can con dear customer you can contact me 24 7 as much as you want unlimited access you, yeah access but i'm not building stuff i'm not like writing code or i'm not painting walls or cleaning a gym i'm answering questions it's advisory so they've got a big risky situation on their hands and they want quick access to someone who they trust to give them good advice they can pay monthly it's a subscription they can pay monthly for access to that expertise if they want that and value it, then they'll pay for it. It's like an insurance policy. But to me, it's like the the typical style retainer is like what you just described, where it's prepayment for a bucket of hours, and then it's the the incentives are not aligned. Well, it's interesting. The last few that I've that I've witnessed in in PR, they they weren't prepayment for a bucket of hours on the surface. It was prepayment for a series of activities. But behind the scenes, the agency looks at it as hours. So how many hours does it take and what level person for agencies that have three or four different levels of people? And so it all goes into the calculation. Their machine is still built on an hourly model, but they've translated it into something that looks like activities to the client. And that's just, for me, that's a disconnect. You know, when I'm the third party looking at it, it just, it doesn't make sense. And neither party feels totally comfortable. The agency feels used and abused if they have to work too many hours. The client feels used and abused if he's not getting, he or she's not getting the results that they expected. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult system. Yeah. And imagine if instead of all of that, you started out by saying to the client, what results are you trying to achieve? Like, yeah, I know you want me to do all of these activities and I can do those activities, but why would, why do you want them? Like what cure are you looking for here? Like, yeah, I can, I can do all of these things, you know, if I'm a massage therapist, like, I, yeah, I can, I can massage your calf, but like, why? Like, what's the problem here? Like, what are you trying to do? Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a, a NBA basketball player and I've been sidelined with this injury for three months and I really want to get back in the game. Okay. Now we're talking. So now, you know, like, okay, this person wants to get back to a, a very specific level of athleticism and it would be different for different people and therefore it'd be worth different to different people. That's the idea of, of like the difference between the inputs, which is like, I'm going to jam my thumb into your calf <laughs> versus outputs. Like you're back at the, you're, you're back on the court. That's the result. That's the difference. And if somebody wants a really, really high value result, like getting back in these NBA games, then the, the value is through the roof. And if you're the, if you are the go-to person 
for sports-related or basketball-related injuries at the pro level, then you're just, they're just not even going to consider anyone else. Well, yeah. I mean, who are you, you going to like look on in Yelp and see who your local <laughs> massage therapist is? No. I mean, if I'm LeBron right. James, I'm going to go to the best. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that gets back a little bit to Seth Godin's thing about entrepreneurs versus freelancers. And if you're a soloist, you're basically a freelancer and the, the path forward is bigger and better clients. And so you get bigger and better clients and this is all a positioning thing where, you know, you're, you know, you are hired by the best and therefore that makes you feel like, oh, this is the only choice. This is the person. So that's the positioning thing. And then if you price yourself, once you're, as you're on your way there, you increase your pricing, 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 and not billing, 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 then your fees are going to go way, way, way up. Yes. Yeah. It's, there's a lockstep with it. I mean, we talked about interplay and circular piece, but it, but it is. Every time you do that, you want the other thing to be behind it. So you do, you do a better job at positioning, your, price, your pricing is next. Do a better job at pricing, pinpoint your positioning more. You can't see my hands. I'm doing sort of the pedal motion, <laughs> <laughs> like like a water a water wheel. But yeah. yeah, yeah. And and it's it's not a perfect evolution because sometimes you'll do something and it doesn't work, right? The first time. And you try it, you know, maybe you tweak it the second time and then it works. And then that's what gives you the momentum to keep experimenting with this. It it really does, if you think about it, it really does never stop. Because you're always building your authority, you're pinpointing your positioning, or you're fine-tuning it, perhaps. Sometimes when you're more at the beginning of the process, it's all about really staking out that, that right position. And maybe you work for a while before you figure out what that is. But you do it, and you just keep incrementally changing. Yeah, it takes time, but if you have that as your objective, eventually you'll get there. Yeah. And yes. event, when I say eventually... I've seen it happen as fast as like six months. Uh, more commonly, it's like eighteen months. But if somebody if somebody really stakes a claim, it's like this is the space I'm going to own, it doesn't take that long to own it. It needs to be sort of realistic. But if you pick a realistic little niche market, let's say, or specialty, it does not take that long to own it. I had a guy I worked with, and um, I won't say what his specialty was, but uh, we were still working on it. We hadn't finished the project. It was about a six-week project, and but we clarified what his positioning uh, would be, and I was working on, all right, so now what do we do with that? And he said, I'm just going to go play with this on Twitter. He got a client, <laughs> and he came to me. He said, I've been doing this for six months. I haven't had a client. I think I need help, and he got the client. All he did was change the language on Twitter. He had like a really small following. I think he had maybe a hundred people. He had just started playing with Twitter and he got his first client. So clarity, when it's the right clarity and really positions you in a, in a unique niche in white space, it can happen lightning fast. Yeah. Uh, yesterday I talked to a listener of the show. She's been on my list for a couple of years and she went solo two years ago and just just took everything we said literally and just did it. And she, she has this killer tight little positioning statement. I don't want to give it away because I don't have permission to like, you know, I didn't ask her if it was okay for me to share this, but it's so specific that if you Googled for it, she would come up. Mm, so she had, this, she had this positioning and she changed it on her social media sites 
And then she like blogged like crazy, did a bunch of YouTube videos about it and this very, very, very specific thing. And within two years, she was speaking at the UN about this subject. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's fabulous. And, and, and other, like a giant Fortune 50 companies getting called in to do keynotes. It was like hyper, hyper focused. And it's not, it's not like a radical position, but it's very focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You so, go girl. Yeah. No kidding. I was like, I was like cheering. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's, but that took courage. I'm sure she didn't oh, yeah. do that lightly. And that's the other piece of this is you just gotta, you gotta do it. Even, you know, you gotta work through the fear and just do it. Just try oh, it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And she's like a, you know, like crazy work ethic and all that stuff so she probably comp compressed like four years of stuff into two years like exceptional person no doubt but it can ha it's like it's like Rochelle's example this example I have other examples too of people who just like you know what I'm just gonna do this and that leap of faith is really hard for a lot of people for other people it's easy and they're just like I just see this is what I want to do this is what I'm gonna do and they well, just like go that's how you tell the story it. about hourly billing it's yeah. it's yeah sometimes you're just there and you go I just know this yeah, is it, it, and I'm going to do it. Right. It happens to me like every 10 years or so. I'm like, this is it. <laughs> and... I hope we're not coming up on that 10-year cusp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we are. <laughs> and it's just like, boom. It can work amazingly. It's Honestly, the hard part is like the leap of faith usually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've, it's interesting because a lot of my clients, they've made the decision they want to do something different before they come to me, right? They've already made that decision. So what they're trying to figure out is, okay, now how do I do this? So I I, I don't see the first part, but I see a lot of the second part, which is, okay, I, I know I wanna do this, but oh man, what you're suggesting is pretty radical. I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And then they do it and it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I know with my students, I don't always hit a home run, but it can work. And when it does work, it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty spectacular. Yeah. And even when it doesn't work, it's this ratchet system where you're you yes. just like your positioning gets a little bit better, your confidence gets a little higher, your prices go up a little bit, da, da, da. maybe you still stick with hourly billing for project work, but you start offering some productized services that have a fixed price and you're like, ooh, that feels really good, different and better. And you start to get addicted to that because it feels great. Oh, oh yeah and and if, especially if it's something that you really like to do and all of a sudden you can explain it on your website you can attach a price to it and it automates a lot of the process that took up your time and energy and you can now use that for something else yeah and a lot of times people are not big these sorts these sorts of soloist folks are not big fans of the sales process so like Rochelle said just like automate it takes all that stuff away and the people that come to you w that are interested in this fixed price thing already know the price. So they're obviously interested. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like they just have a couple of questions and then it's a yes or a no and, and you move on. It's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I have to laugh because I love the sales process. I really do. <laughs> I love talking to these people, listening yeah. to what their their stuff is and hearing what they're working on. I mean, it's fascinating. But um, yeah, so there's that. Yeah. Well, you so like not to start talking about sales, but like you and I have the same approach, which is just like it's that's you're just asking. It's like a doctor, like tell me where it hurts, how long has this been happening, and there's no pressure to like convince them of something or like force them to do something they don't want to do. It's like so. So for me, I agree. Like the sales process for me is kind of fun, but it's not what I. It's not the sales process 
10 years ago, I thought the sales process was something very different. And well, it, yeah, we're not out fun. there cold calling, trying to get somebody to listen to us. It's definitely pitching. different. Yeah, the whole pitching thing is can be challenging. But when they come to you and they're willing to trust you to share their their problems and you ask pointed questions, you get pointed answers, it's, it's, a, it's a very cool thing. Mm. So to pull it back to the topic, it's this interplay between positioning and pricing that they play off of each other. They're very different, but they're really important. They're sort of like like twin moons circling each other. <laughs> In my head, that's what it looks like. It's like creates so much leverage for your business. And and by the way, not only are you making more money for less work, but you're having a bigger impact with the clients that you're you're bringing in because they're clients that have a much bigger problem or bigger opportunity that they're trying to capture. So you you're having a bigger impact, which is feels great too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not forget impact and influence. It's, um, you know, when you were saying the moons, I was thinking, well, it's the three P's, right? Um, it's pricing and positioning. When, when you have a business where you're not creating product, like actual product, that's really all you have is, is how you price, how you position yourself. Mm -hmm. That's all you got. Yeah. All right. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> let's go make some profits. Yes, exactly. All right. I guess that's it for this time around. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.